0: This is The T-Zone by MAC Cosmetics, dishing out a behind-the-brush look at the beauty industry and beyond.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The T-Zone by MAC Cosmetics. I'm Drew Elliott, the Global Creative Director here at MAC, and I'm joined by my incredible co-host, John Dempsey, who serves as the Executive Group President at Estee Lauder Companies. And February means it is fashion month, and we have someone who truly encapsulates All things style, glamour, branding,
2: a true legend. Nobody understands this better than legendary stylist and costume designer June Ambrose, who has built a career creating culture-shifting moments through fashion and style. June is truly an icon, from designing costumes for Hype Williams Belly to costume designing music videos for hip-hop heavyweight legends like Missy Elliott, P. Diddy, and Jay-Z. June has left an indelible mark on fashion and created the blueprint for many of the trends that we see in the world today.
1: June has also changed the industry itself through her fearlessness and her willingness to challenge the status quo. So whether she is creating opportunities for other stylists of color, building bridges between luxury European fashion houses and hip hop artists, or pioneering the celebrity brand collaboration, she has shaped an industry and created opportunity where there was none.
2: Our chairman emeritus at the Estee Lauder Companies, Mr. Leonard Lauder says, if you can't see the future, you'll never get there. June Ambrose sees the future. We have the privilege of working directly with June as part of the Estee Lauder Companies Creative Advisory Board, which was created last year to provide creative teams with important viewpoints from exceptional creative directors and champions for inclusion and diversity. We are thrilled to be joined by June on our show today.
1: Well, hello, June Ambrose. How are you? Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Tea Zone. Oh, is that what it's called? I love that. Yeah. I don't even want to know what that means. It's all the tea. Oh, oh like as in sipping tea.
1: Yeah, it's all the tea.
0: All the tea you want to hear about oh. tea. Oh, I love tea. <laughs> I'm from the British West Indies, so we do tea. Lots of tea.
2: I know you have a lot of tea. Yes, I do. <laughs> and June, hi, it's John. Hi, John. So good to see you always. How amazing to see you here, chic as ever. You are so kind. You give the best compliment. Bright and beautiful. And so good seeing you.
0: I said that in the new year I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive all the compliments I can. I'm just gonna keep them and I'm gonna just I'm not gonna delete them. I'm gonna hold on to them. So by by the end of the year, I'm feeling myself.
2: we're feeling you right now. So thank you for being with us.
0: No, it's an honor.
1: And for those of you listening, it's I wish you could see June right now. So let me try and describe for you what June looks like. Is June has the most epic hat on. She described it, not myself, more as a lampshade, but it's this gorgeous black hat. She's wearing a white tunic. And then, of course, you know, absolutely accessorized and then perfect, perfect makeup every time.
0: No, thank you. I I I try to go for more is more.
2: (laughs) Who did the hat?
0: Oh, this hat was designed by a black milliner. His name is Rodney from Essentials, and he is just so creative and fun. And this particular hat was a nod to Dior's collection, and it literally released at the same time that the museum exhibit was happening in Brooklyn. So it was perfect timing. I live for a chapeau. I love a lid. I love punctuation. I never really end a sentence with a period. It's either you know I leave it unbuttoned or I'm completely like punctuation.
2: The Balenciaga Couture show with had that hat going backwards, forwards, and sideways. So always hats off to June Ambrose. I like that. Actually, the first time I met you, June, which is my OG back in the day in the '90s, pre-millennial times, was at the opening of the Fendi store. I'd seen you. At all these incredible fashion shows and wondering, like, who is this (laughs) impossibly glamorous fashionista diva with all the paparazzi around and who I didn't really know who you were. I was absolutely in awe of you. And I came up to you and you were wearing this outrageously to the top stovepipe hat. Yeah. Totally Fendi to the to the max, and that's when I started having a conversation with you, and we had we had known so many people, yeah, common together because of my deep love of fashion style, and at the time where you became so famous, the importance of hip hop and music and the urban aesthetic, and how that moment. And you, quite honestly, brought the streets, the vibe, and couture, and fashion, and pop culture all together. And that's always to me, you've always represented that. And if anything, that's 20 more years ago. Yeah. Or as gorgeous, stylish, and fabulous, even more so today. So
1: June, take those compliments in. And then after you're done with that, and it might take a minute, I I want you to just give us like, a you know, you have influenced culture and style in so many ways over the last, you know, over 25 years. And I just want you to give everyone kind of a vision. Who is June Ambrose? And how did you become the icon that you are that got noticed in the stovepipe hat at the Fendi store by John (laughs)
0: I'm so glad that John started the conversation off that way because my look was my calling card. It was the way that I was able to attract and articulate how I knew who I was and how I felt. And even as a very young girl growing up in a single parent home in the Bronx, I always felt like I was out of place. I always felt like I was, it was a temporary kind of like landing spot. And the beauty in, in, I think the best gift my mother ever gave me was she didn't, she didn't redesign me, you know, and as a mother now, I'm always very careful not to redirect creativity. And she really allowed me to express myself. I started off in the arts. I was a theater major. So I understood every aspect of character development, becoming the character and how to use that as a way to be ultra confident. There was no room that I was ever afraid to walk into. And sometimes most of the time I was either the only woman, especially in the music business or the only young person of color. So I started off in investment banking many years ago and I incorporated my company, my own company in 1994. So leaving corporate America, leaving the arts, going into finance, taking one of the biggest risks in my life. Well, not one, you know, that's one of the biggest risks. And leaving all of that behind to start an internship at a record company, it taught me so much, you know, and I think so much of what we're going to talk about today, you know, a lot of who I am will start to unravel in the conversation. But I've always felt like it was really important to change the narrative. I can't erase my color and my complexion. And that does come with stereotypes. Let's just be frankly honest. But what I am able to do is articulate how I feel. And I've I've honestly been the most precocious child. I have not changed. I still ask my young self permission to continue to be, you know, I'm like Peter Pan. Like I, you know, my kids look at me sometimes. And they're like, what is wrong with you? I'm always giggling. I always want to have fun. I've always gone into very intense and serious situations and was able to create calmness and and give a sense of security. And that's what I did in the music business. I came into a world, into a genre of music that was somewhat like secular music. It was like rock and roll. You know, hip hop music was not as commercial and, and as crossover as you see it now. I started in the 90s and the fashion industry hadn't recognized it as a point of reference in terms of our consumers will be influenced by these people because of the lyrical content was one it needs a poets and the artists were coming from so many different places and the music was so provocative and i knew that i can change the narrative i knew my job was bigger than just playing dress up and when i started i didn't have the luxury of just calling up a fashion house and saying give me this and a lot of people you know they call me a stylist and i didn't Styling was a, one of the big aspects of what I did, but costume designing is what got the attention of everyone. When John met me, I was wearing a custom costume design hat that, you know, that helmet that he's talking about. I designed that hat and it had this big V on it. And it, it, for me, I was like, it means vagina. It was like, it's like the biggest, <laughs> I, just, I am just like, I can I like, go big or go home, but I'm five foot two. So I knew whenever I stepped out, if I wanted to.
2: You're five foot two. I always think of you as being five foot ten. But,
0: and that's how I feel in my head. I had to be noticed. I had, knew I, had, I couldn't come to that party.
2: I never, ever, ever think of you as being petite.
0: And I am.
2: And I always think of you as being bigger than life.
0: I, oh, I think I think tall.
2: I actually think that night I was with little Kim at that opening. You with little Kim and Martha Stewart, which was the best combination
1: Wait, June, talk to us. So you talked about starting in music. So talk to us about, you know, the artists that you worked with, the rooms that you went into, the spaces, the labels. Tell us a bit about that because, you know, I've known you for a very long time and have been able to, I think the other piece too is I've never been at an amazing party where you weren't there. So it's like, I always feel like, like you are always at the center of where things are happening. But Give everyone kind of like a, a vision of what were those early projects? What was the thing where you were like, that really, that was my start.
0: So I was interning when Andre Harrell, the late Andre Harrell, who's no longer with us, had just given Sean Puffy Combs his A&R position. And right. I remember working on Puffy's first bio for him because he was just getting set up. And he would have stacks of collections, his magazines. He was very into European fashion we was very intrigued and, you know, just wanted to bring like, you know, high fashion. And I came into the office with big glasses and big energy. And he was like, I was so cocky, you know, for someone who was an intern, I was very confident, but I also was coming from investment banking. So I, I you know, I had some money, some disposable income, and I invested back into myself. So I'd walk in and he'd look at me like, who is this person? I'd always have an opinion. But I also was wallpaper. I was a sponge. I would literally listen to everything that was going on. And I was in the marketing department. So I really understood where their needs were, where the white space was, so that I could insert myself most effectively. I knew I came from theater where costume design what, and character development is what, in the music industry, they called artist development. So I said, why couldn't I, I apply those that knowledge and know-how into this space? So early days of, I mean, Jodeci was just born, and Mary J. Blige was coming up, and I worked on, like, the Backstreet Boys, and then I think I really started the noise really started happening when I started working with Height Williams. You had the Missy Elliott's, you had the Buster Rhymes, you had the Puffies who started to trust me. I came back to work with Puffy a couple years after I gained some experience under my belt. And I remember the first time I worked with him, I'm responsible for putting Puffy in the shiny red suits. You know, uh-huh. he has a re- yeah, the shiny red, the shiny suit, man. And I remember the first time, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he says, I'm not wearing anything shiny. He was like, he called me lady, excuse me, miss lady. I would never wear anything shiny. It's not street. That's not hip hop. And I'm like, well, I thought we were role playing here. I thought we were creating, I thought this was, I thought we were talking about characters that were from another place. And I'm like, I'm looking at this, not only from a persona perspective, but I'm looking at it from what is the camera going to do to this material? How is the deep? Because I would literally always talk to my DP, my director, my art department. I stayed very close to those creatives in the process. And because I said I looked him in his face and said, you don't have to do this, but I'm going to do this. I said, let me do you a favor and you don't have to trust me because you don't know me. I said, I will put my whole entire career on this moment. I'll make one in red leather mat and I'll make one in, in the shiny leather and the plastic covered nylon suits that look, make them look like moon men. And I was like, if it doesn't work, I will retire here today. <laughs> that's a huge risk. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big, I took a big chance, but I was that confident in knowing that it was going to change the face and the, and the conversation, the music in my head, I would never listen to the lyrics. I would, I would create looks based off of beats and drums and energy and persona more so than the lyrical content, because the lyrical content felt very now. And I was always in a place of forecasting and aspiration and where I saw it to be unless I was doing a period piece. And, you know, it worked. And it was and that was it. I remember working with him with Anna Wintour. Put him in his first chinchilla, pulled him his Fred Latham diamonds and Lorraine Schwartz jewelry. Got him into all of that kind of luxury kind of moment. Introduced him to J-Lo. You know, we started doing tons and tons of music videos together. I was working on his Bad Boy crew. In the midst of all that, I had other artists and things going on. I started. I incorporated my company at that point. So in 1994, I incorporated my company Mod Squad at the time. And it was a full-service creative agency that kind of just took off because I, I literally every job led you to the next job and i always tell people it's currency it's 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 how you stay relevant yeah, i was as good as my last job so i did every job with butterflies and like it was i had to give it my all and we were having so much fun but we didn't ask for permission we didn't have anything to compare it to there was no social media that was the beauty in it
1: i think also June, one of the things that you're so known for is celebrating Black culture and also fighting for greater representation, you know, for Black creatives, for just as you were talking about, you're an amazing milliner in Harlem, but always bringing all of these incredible people, talents to life. Can you talk to us about that and really how it's changed over time? I know that you and I are currently working together on on making sure that we continue all of this work moving forward. I would love to hear from you on that.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important. Collaborative experiences come both ways, right? So we wanted to partner with fashion houses where there wasn't, in terms of high fashion couture, especially, there there was no Black representation. So we had to recognize what we bring to the table and what they bring to the table. And that was a collaborative experience. Somehow along the way, the power started to kind of, it didn't kind of shift over. I think we're in a better place now, but I think that understanding how important it is to be inclusive in every single way and knowing that I was that young girl who just needed someone to give me the opportunity. I didn't need you to do anything more than give me the chance. Just give me a chance. Give me a shot. So whenever I can give someone the shot, and that's why I never take responsibility for any successes and other stylists that I've raised and have come up and done extremely well. I can't take responsibility for that because if you listen, if you're talented, you survive. If you... Recognize this as business, you survive. So there's so many aspects of the survival, how you sustain and survive. And I think a lot of it has to do with just giving them the opportunity. And as long as you can open the door, you know, at the time when I started my company, the majority of my team were Black gay men who came from the houses, the house of... <laughs> The House of Gucci, the yeah. House of Milan, the House yeah. of Extravaganza, you know. Yeah. These kids would spend so much time, and I call them kids because that's what—that's the lingo, since we're spilling tea here today. And these kids were like orphans in a sense. They had all this energy, and they would spend so much time focusing on how to pull in these pieces and really study fashion. They were like little junior Andrile and tallies. And I was like kind of the mother of the house. And I, too, spoke the same language. And we it was just... But I gave them a place to legitimize and focus their energy and to turn it into um, something that was a business, give them careers. Now, when I left investment banking, that was a job. I was looking for a career and I found it. I'm an entrepreneur and I found I knew that I had that spirit and I I found so I've literally taught so many young people who love fashion and style that it can be a career that it is something that that they have to think of it as you are the CEO of your life and you have to build your business and your game plan the way any CEO of fortune 5 you know 100 company will
2: you're so much more than just a stylist or a creative director or a persona or a public figure i mean actually there's so many different facets to you And that's what I've always admired about you is if you don't dream big, Mm -hmm. you don't get big. And at the same time, you always worked hard Mm -hmm. and you always had a sense of humility, a sense of humor, a sense of where people came from, a respect for the work. I think the work that you're doing now is Creative director at Puma and, you know, the work that you're helping us at the Estee Lauder companies, particularly at Mac and working with Drew and helping us to understand inclusion and diversity and representation and understanding the culture Mm -hmm. from every aspect is, is so important. And even recently, you worked with the Estee Lauder brand and directing Amanda Gorman. And I just saw the, the content and the, Evolution and transformation that a touch of June brings wow. is pretty pretty awesome, actually. So, not that we need any hallmark moments for anything, but you know, February being Black History Month, and you are a Black woman, but first and foremost, you're June Ambrose. Yeah. But still, yeah. Your personal story and where you're at right now, and where you're going and what you see. Around us. It's so important and people want to hear about
0: it. Yeah, that makes me emotional hearing it because at the core of it all, you want to be seen and not physically seen, but you see me. The fact that you could recognize there's a sense of humility and hard work is probably the biggest compliment you can give me because that means you see me past the fashion, past the layers of makeup, past the glamour. You see me. And That's what we want as women, as especially as Black women, as human beings. We want to be seen, and that's probably one of the biggest compliments I could receive. So thank you,
1: June. How do you have time to do all the things you do? I mean, (laughs) this is what I wanted. I
0: I think it's underneath
1: the hat. I think I think you 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 have some type. Because I'm thinking you are Puma's, you know, the brand's creative director and for women's hoops, and so I think. That's one piece. Then you're styling Amanda Gorman in one moment. You're having a call with me. So how do you like, and then you have, you are, have to be glam at the same time. Like how does, how does someone even start the business of June Ambrose?
0: You pace yourself. I always say you keep it, you go narrow and you go deep and you're focused and you work on the things that you know are going to reap larger reward And when I was working on the Puma collection, I'm launching a division for the brand and the women's basketball space is a very unique, unknown space. We don't know who that consumer is. So having to use my AI, my my authentic intelligence to create this consumer was quite the experience, but I knew that it would grow me. Right. So I focused on that. I'm also working on motorsport with the brand too, as well. So wherever there's like underserved, where I could speak to women in a division of the Puma brand is where I'm tapping into. So I get to work with Farai, which is exciting because they don't speak to women and I get to launch the first women's capsule collection for them. It's the first time I'm talking about it actually with you, with you all. And then like, you know, even the work that I'm doing with you all and the work that I do with the Fresh Year Fund from the philanthropy side and sitting on boards, it's important work like that to me is like you carve out the things that really are important that are going to grow grow me as a brand and grow me as a human. I want my kids to be able to see that you don't spread yourself thin, but you focus on the things that you know are going to reap huge benefits in the long run. And I think that's how I get it done. I, I focus on it, I get it done, I move on to the next. And I I compartmentalize.
2: You mentioned your kids, June Ambrose, the mom. I said this to you when I saw you a few weeks ago, the evolution of your daughter, specifically. And watching her morph from maybe rebelling against glamorous mom (laughs) to a full-out duet or duel for style and fashion and fabulousness. I mean, the evolution of her coming out of the pandemic and watching the evolution on your content and your social and seeing your daughter... All of a sudden, and I know you know, we talked about, it, you didn't want to impose on her. You didn't want to tell her what she had to wear. You mm-hmm. wanted her to come to her own conclusions. But all of a sudden, it just, all of a sudden, it switched on like, like immediately. It was like a dramatic, like a dramatic shift. Yeah. What happened? I
0: took a note out of my mom's page. You know, I just let her be. First of all, both of my kids graduated high school in the pandemic. They are going through such a, it's a really tough time as a teenager. You have a teenager, you know, you have to give them space to develop and evolve. And I know that because I had space, probably not by choice. My mom, I was a latchkey kid. My mom worked, you know, most of them. So we were left to really kind of do a lot for ourselves. So like we're raising like these city kids, but we know we have to keep them grounded and we know we have to give them room to kind of express themselves, but also, give them great information through osmosis. Summer, I got to tell you though, Summer is probably, she got me through the pandemic. I love spending time with her. She loves spending time with me, which is so taboo, right? A 50-year-old and a 17-year-old, what do you guys have in common? You know, (laughs) but we get on, you know. She makes me a better person. I make her a better person. I allow her to work through her as she's, you know, growing into a woman, it was painful to watch her in the beginning, kind of rebuke fashion, but I'm I'm not going to lie and cookie coat it. It was tough. She only wanted to wear sweatpants, And I was like, you know, people are going to see you. We're out in the streets. I'm like, don't you care how you look? And I just had to let her be. And then, like you said, through osmosis, she kind of just found herself. One of the
1: things that you, you said to me and it really struck me is, is creating your own generational wealth. So creating the foundation and not even about money, it's how do you create the legacy and you know the position and the advancement? And so I think just as you're talking about your daughter and your kids, it's how do you kind of like instill that concept? And I loved when you said, it really kind of like opened my eyes. It goes from having a career to having a legacy and a generation, that made me think so differently.
0: Yeah. Financial literacy is something we practice at home. Dinner time, we're talking about stocks. You know, We're talking about saving. We're talking about what's a true investment. Young people love fashion. They love sneakers. They love all these things. We talk about long-term seeing yourself 10 and 15 and 20 years from now. And then also for me, it's like, what do we want to leave behind? We're not here forever. So I recognize that. With technology, we can live on forever. Like we could be infinite, depending on what we literally leave behind. So I'm always thinking about how do I want to be. I know it sounds morbid, but how do I want to be remembered? What do I want to inspire my kids to know? Even now, like my kids have point of references. They go back and look at my body of work, and they share it with their friends. And it's still relevant. It's something, you know. I'm an author. Like these kind of things. I'm almost like you. Kind of memorialize yourself in the living, in a sense which is this, this something kind of beautiful about that. But I think that the fact that they understand, especially now the workforce is so different. And when most of our kids graduate, a lot of them go to college, they graduate, they can't find jobs. So teaching them of other ways to earn money, other ways of surviving, being ambitious, and then also like knowing what to put away that you can, if everything else fails, that you have something that you can either make money while you sleep or you know, find a way that you will never have to live on the streets. That to me is like one of the single most important things.
1: That's her next book too. <laughs>
0: How Not to Live on the Streets.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you talk to me for a minute? Like, I love this idea, but I, when you think back in your career and all the amazing things you've done, what are those key moments where you were like, Uh, This is going to live forever, whether it's a picture or whether it's a moment or whether it's like that thing where you were like, oh, this artist, what are those moments for you that you're like, that is a June signature?
0: Ooh, Uh, are you speaking of things that I may have done anywhere?
2: Anyway, so puffy in a red suit, people you styled, a look that you brought forward, or an artist that you were part of that magical moment of their.
0: I, I, you know, God, you know, I think who knew that it would be the Missy Elliott blow up suit that people called the garbage bag for so many years. You know, it's like a costume now in like costume shops for Halloween. I'm always looking to create those moments. You look at what I did with my work on the run with Jay-Z and Beyonce, the Tiffany campaign, all those kind of all like every decade. I'm looking to create these kind of like moments that we will. Kind of look back and say this was iconic. We can we can only celebrate the, the, the late nineties for so long, right? So I know that there's an expiration on. She was that girl who did this. I got to find some other stuff to talk about when we hit twenty twenty, you know, twenty fifty. You know, I'm
1: sorry though, June. Take me into the dressing room. When you bring Missy Elliott, basically an inflatable trash bag and say, this is A, going to make you famous and a style icon and B, you're going to wear it. Like, what does Missy Elliott say to you there?
0: Seriously, when you looked at the suit, it looked like nothing. It really did look like a vinyl trash bag until we inflated it. And it's even even when we inflated it, it was like just, you know. An outline of like a gingerbread man, like, you know, burnt gingerbread man. The beauty in having Missy Elliott as a muse at that time was that she gaining trust. And, I, you know, I think there's something to be said about. Understanding how important of a role you play in the development of an artist from the marketing perspective, from the personal perspective, I knew that anything that Missy did was going to change the face of how women in hip-hop were seen. Because you look at artists like Lizzo now, and it's because of artists like Missy, you know, Missy came at a time when hip-hop, women in hip-hop, were being objectified over sexual, you know, sexualized images was all that was received. That was what we, it was like a brothel. And it's kind of come full circle. It's kind of what it looks like now.
2: Yeah, but only from the ladies' perspective. Right. (laughs) Right. <laughs>
0: we have some shirtless guys running the hip hop. But yeah, I mean, the women have totally taken reign and licensed to owning this is my body. I control this narrative, non apologetic. But at the time, Missy was like, This is who I am. My lyrical content is very provocative, my body movement is very overt. She could be that sporty girl. You know, when you look at Aaliyah, Aaliyah was like this tomboy, sexy tomboy. So there was all these kind of different like translations and narrative of like what sexy was, what sporty was. Look at how hip hop's been redefined.
2: During this time period, Missy actually was a Mac Viva Glam girl. Yes. I got to know her very well. And I remember that she would spend her own money on creating those MTV videos Mm -hmm. And she would put a production value in every single thing that she would do because no Mm -hmm. one else would do it. No record label would pull up and support it. And she her point was that she was going to create her image and her voice and she was going to say it the way she wanted to say it. And she was going to sign the check to make sure that it got seen.
0: I'm so glad you said that. But she also had the luxury of being a writer. Yes. And a producer. So she had that disposable income, right? Right. That's really the magic in it. Like we just shot a couple of years ago before the pandemic, six music videos back to back, six days for music videos. And Missy, she wrote the check for that.
2: Around the time that this will be coming out, actually, she's having her first music drop in 17 years, actually.
0: Yeah, crazy. It's right? going to
2: be a Missy Elliott spring.
0: Isn't that crazy? I don't. I'm so excited.
1: June, one of the things that you always say is more is more. And so what, obviously I, I want to, I have to talk. I, I can't let you leave without talking about makeup. Yes. You are always done. You always have a gorgeous lash on. You always have, but talk to us about what you think about makeup in this time. Like no makeup, makeup. Are we tired of it? What is the next thing? What are we seeing from your perspective? Cause you always have a vision to the future.
0: You know, I was talking about this the other day and it was like, you know, perfectly imperfect. I think that it's really we spent the last couple of years celebrating perfection. I think as I evolve, my focus is on skincare, so that I can wear my makeup in a way it becomes an accessory, not necessarily the mask. Right. Right. So I think that as black women redefine hair. And not just black women, women in general, because all the, listen, black women, white women, Asian women wearing extensions. Makeup, I think, will also start to really kind of be redirected into a place of natural beauty. But you could be fully beat. I love a full beat, but I want to look like I'm not wearing anything. So texture, 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 texture is going to be key. And it's going to just highlight beautiful features. That'll be the storytelling. not dragon eyelashes. I think that that's going to be great for stage. I think that's going to, it's going to all be put into context, right? Because it's like when women started wearing colorful wigs and all that kind of stuff, that was because there was this whole kind of conversation about storytelling and they were being rebellious. But I think that we really are going to come full circle. And I'm taking these notes also from my young girl. Someone said this to I nearly cringe middle-aged woman, because I don't even know what that means anymore. Because I feel like I'm in my 20s, darling.
2: Um, (laughs) And just just like that. Yes. (laughs) And just like that. Yeah, exactly. And just like
0: that. (laughs) Right. But I think that, you know, even the young girls also want to find a place where they don't have to try to compete or keep up, but just find their own beautiful identity. So I think it's about finding your own personal identity within makeup. And I think it's going to be a beautiful thing to see evolve. Everything will be in context. If I'm going here, like I need makeup to work out, what does that look like? I need makeup to drop the kids off. It's all going to be in context so that you're not wearing a full glam face to drop the kids off. Now, when I want to be glamorous and drop the kids off back in, you know, when I was doing, that was my role. I would put on a bright red, ruby red Mac lip. And I lived in this lip religiously. Why? Because it was the best glamouflage. It literally brought all the focus to my mouth, and my tired eyes didn't matter.
1: Glamouflage. So
0: it's like balancing the bold. Yes. I
1: love glamouflage.
0: Glamouflage. I think makeup, beauty will be redefined as glamouflaging.
1: You heard it here first, folks.
0: Glamouflage. We should trademark that. We have to trademark that quickly, yes. John, because.
2: <laughs> glamouflage. When you were growing up, who were your beauty? icons
0: you know interesting though my mother never wore makeup but my grandmother my step-grandmother did Dinah Ross I was obsessed with again just cute. there was something very doughy and dreamy about her you know the Dorothy Dandridge I mean I even loved like Jackie Onassis I just it was like even you know I was even inspired by like white women Audrey Hepburn a heavy eyeliner Twiggy you know I was inspired by all of that
2: so lifestyle for you and style and what's behind it matters a lot too. So that that's always been the not, not that some like FERC here, but the glamorous life. But you always put things in the context of lifestyle. Even when you talked about beauty today and going to the gym or going to drop your kids off at school or glamouflage or so that lifestyle, you you always have a destination in mind, it seems.
0: Yeah. Well, that's life is a destination, right? We're always trying to get somewhere. We're always on the move.
1: And June, who are the young stars that you're like, you know, I'm obsessed with the Euphoria cast. I'm obsessed. You know, it's like, who are the young people that you're like, ooh, that's my girl. That's my guy.
0: I love girls like the Yaras and the, you know, and then the Gossip Girl crew, you know, the new goss I mean, just like all these kind of different faces, the androgynous, there's so many. And even like with the TikTok phenomenon, Because of TikTok is why I say what I'm saying. Because you think about, look how real people have now become part of the conversation. You can't differentiate the stars in quotes. You know, you can't say that this, we had so many stars that were born over the pandemic. When that platform started, I remember my kids telling me, I can't, I'm too, I couldn't get on it. I wasn't, you know, it was a young platform. Now you have 90 year olds using it. So it goes to show you that the idea of ageless, age-defying approach to life. They're numbers at this point. It's how you manage your property, under construction, renovations, your physical self. How to keep that up. Why did I go vegan?
2: Why did I, I mean, all these things play into- Who's on a June Ambrose playlist? When working oh, out.
0: Oh, Lauren Hill, Beyonce, <laughs> <laughs> Solange, Lizzo, I love Afro-Cuban music. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I'm very random. You know, I'm old school too. I love soul to soul. Depends. If I want to be on the treadmill crying, I'd put on some... I'll uh, <laughs> put on, like, um, <laughs> put on
2: a, a Adele. Is there any person living or not alive right now that you, you would have wanted to meet? Oh, that I would have wanted to meet? Maybe a few people. I mean... There's, a,
0: there's so many we've lost. You know, I never... I never met Biggie. Never met Biggie Smalls. I know that's random.
2: You're too young to have known Biggie Smalls.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I was a toddler.
2: You're just too young. You're just too young.
0: I was a toddler. That was for grown folks.
2: Anybody you want to meet that you haven't met yet?
0: Um. Oh, yeah, the son. Cher. I'd love to meet Cher.
2: We can hook that up for you. Challenge accepted. She's our new BFF. Yes, challenge accepted. June Ambrose, Cher, check.
0: <laughs> yeah. I feel like a tea with her and Bob Mackey just reminisce would
2: be really fun.
1: <laughs> Junior you are amazing. I love you. You continue you always inspire me. I think that's the thing, is, is you you always give me something to take away. So I appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here with us and and spilling the tea for a moment or two with us.
2: We could do this for like Nicholas Nickleby for like seven hours. So it's a-
0: I know. <laughs> This was this I knew this was gonna be fun though.
1: We want to thank you, June, for being with us on today's show and sharing your I mean your incredible journey, your perspective, and also where you're seeing diversity and beauty and fashion and even a little bit of glamouflage. So Thanks so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. I'm John Dempsey. And I'm Drew Elliott. And this has been The T-Zone, brought to you by MAC Cosmetics.